0: To the Howie Silbiger Show on the True Talk Radio Network. Get in on the conversation. Call 1 877 669 1292. Isn't it amazing? Absolutely fascinating. That so many people suddenly care so much about the Palestinians. So many people care so much about the Gazans. That they're going to the streets in the thousands. Isn't it amazing that suddenly, after, after years and years and years of fighting with Israel, after years and years and years of terror attacks and bombs falling on the heads of Jewish babies in southern Israel, and finally Israel fighting back, Suddenly, everybody's pro-Palestinian, everybody's pro-Ghazan. I find it fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. But it's not true. And it's not real. And that's really what I find the most fascinating part of the whole thing, is that it's all fake. Oh, sure, there's a war going on that wasn't fake. Oh, sure, there was a terror attack on October 7th. There was a genocidal attack by a sex-crazed death cult. That happened. 1,200 Jews were killed. We really don't know how many people were, ki- are, were killed or are being killed in Gaza. We have no idea because the only numbers coming out of Gaza are given to us by Hamas, the terror group that started the war. So of course they're going to exaggerate the numbers. Of course they're going to say what they want to say. And they're going, they going to claim what they want to claim to make Israel look as bad as possible. Of course, they're going to say 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100,000 babies were killed in the last week because that makes Israel look like barbarians. But the truth is that in order to to trust the numbers in Gaza, we have to trust Hamas, the genocidal sex-crazed terror group that committed an attack against the Israelis and started this war. And we can't do that. We can't trust Hamas we, would you trust Hamas? I, I don't trust Hamas. So the numbers coming out of Gaza when they when they claim that so many people have died are, are undeniably exaggerated, undeniably lies. So who knows? And the propaganda, the propaganda being perpetrated on the Western society, the talk shows, the pictures, the... They're pure outrage. It's all fake, too. Half the pictures being depicted as current fighting in Gaza are taken from previous wars, wars in Iran and wars in Syria. And they're years and years old. Just do a date search on the pictures and you'll realize that the pictures from Gaza that you're crying over aren't real either. This is a huge propaganda war this is a huge propaganda war that Israel is losing at the moment. This, now, now, you know, anti-Israel protesters, anti-Israel people will point out that Israel's currently being tried for war crimes in the International Court of Justice. And while that's true, that there is a case going on right now brought to the International Court of Justice by, of all places, South Africa, the bastion of human rights, African National Congress, by the way, just so we're clear. Nelson Mandela was the head of the African National Congress. He committed terror attacks against white people opposing apartheid, killing thousands. He was put into jail for 26 years. He was put into jail solely because he committed terror attacks, not because he was black, not because it was, uh, he, was uh, he was fighting the apartheid state, and he committed terror attacks against white people. He was put into jail. And he was given many, many opportunities. This is what they don't teach you in school. He was given many, many opportunities to get out of jail over the 28 years he was in jail. All he had to do was denounce terrorism, uh, denounce terrorism, denounce violence. He had to say that violence was not the way to solve the problem, and that negotiation was the way to solve the problem. He refused to do that and sat in jail until apartheid fell. That's what happened with Nelson Mandela. So what happened after Mandela got out of prison... Well, it's quite simple. He went on a vengeance campaign. He sent his men of the African National Congress out to murder white people, as many as they can. Farmers, full families, just went out and murdered them all. And indiscriminately murdered them and stole their land, stole their farms, stole their businesses. Now, the world, it's a obvious war crime attacking civilians. The uh, farmer in Johannesburg was not... Uh, guilty of committing apartheid against anybody. He wasn't guilty of uh, uh, of, of leading a country in, in apartheid. He was a farmer. But he was murdered, and his whole family was murdered on their farm by the African National Congress. So Nelson Mandela, the hero, after he refused to denounce terrorism as, as a solution to his problem, after he spent 20-odd years in jail, came out of jail and, and, and committed war crimes. But the world remained quiet as, as South Africans, blacks, killed the South African whites. They were screaming about apartheid, but they allowed the massacre of whites. And when I speak to my liberal friends and we talk about it, and I, and I point this out, I am told that, well, the whites deserved it. I was told uh, not long ago that you can't be racist against white people, that, that discrimination against white people is fine because white people were so evil over the centuries that anything they get now is fine. So the fact that Africa, South Africa, is bringing Israel to the International Criminal Court uh, on charges of genocide, when they committed their own genocide against white people, is laughable, absolutely laughable. But the International Criminal Court has to take it seriously and has to listen to the case. The idea that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza is also a huge joke. If, if you think about it, Israel's mighty enough, and they have enough military equipment and enough bomb armaments uh, that if they wanted to commit a genocide in Gaza, if they wanted to wipe out every man, woman, and child living in Gaza, they could do so in 40 minutes, probably even less. The fact that Gaza still exists, the fact that it hasn't been reduced to rubble, the fact that people still live in Gaza, is a testament to the fact that Israel does not want to commit a genocide. Because if they did, Gaza wouldn't exist. It's, it's not a very big place. It would be very, very easy for Israel to, to carpet bomb Gaza to, to an extent where nothing would survive. But they choose not to. And they choose not to, not because they don't think that Hamas has to be destroyed. They choose not to, not because they don't feel that the Gazans cheering, the indiscriminate murder of Jews on October 7th, was was, was criminal. They choose not to because Israel doesn't want to kill innocent people. Even innocent people who cheered the murder, the genocidal attack on their country. They don't want to kill people who aren't holding guns and who aren't trying to murder Jews. And that's the truth. Now, the Toronto Sun, Warren Kinsella writes for the Toronto Sun. He was an ardent liberal until the liberal government went nuts and started supporting Hamas in Canada. And he, uh, he, um, he wrote a great article. It, it, if you could check it out, check it out. It was about 11 days ago, on January 11th. He wrote an amazing article titled Who is Behind Funding for Pro-Palestinian Protesters? So so let's just put this into context for a second before I share part of the article with you let's let's put this into context The protest started after Israel went on a uh, after Israel went on a, a on a mission to destroy Hamas So Israel went and the, the armies went into Gaza with the sole intention of destroying Hamas Now immediately instantly the world went nuts and protests erupted everywhere. Now, we're we're not. It's not unusual for protests to erupt about the Middle East, and it's not unusual for protests to erupt uh, against Israel any time they take any action against Hamas. This is not an unusual thing to happen. But what is unusual is the length of time that these protests have have continued, and the amount of people that have consistently shown up to these to these protests. Normally, you get a ragtag of a hundred people who show up, maybe. And then the next one's 50 people, then it's 25 people. And that's to any cause, because people lose interest in causes really quick. So the fact that tens of thousands of people are showing up time and time and time again, day after day after day, now over 100 days, just shows that there's a lot of organization behind us and a lot of money behind us. Somebody's paying these protesters to be there. Somebody's paying for these protests to happen. Warren Kinsella decided to look into who is funding these protests. And, and he, wrote the, he wrote this great thing. He said, and then he scandaled as a rule follow the money. When you see who's paying and who's benefiting, you'll learn plenty. On Wednesday, The Sun followed the money and broke some news. Anti Israel protesters are getting paid to protest. After the horrors of October 7th and the pro Hamas crowds, starting to show up in big numbers with professionals-looking organization signs, with professional-looking organizers and signage, suspicion grew. In the past, anti-Israel protests were ragtag efforts and few and far between. The post-October 7th protests were anything but. They were big, they were noisy, and they were causing chaos from the island of Manhattan to the island of Vancouver. They looked like the sort of rallies that professional political parties put together. But did that many people really hate the Jewish state? No, because if you're getting paid to be there, effectively just an actor, then you're just playing a role, which suggests that the anti-Israel protests are as phony as a $3 bill. A recap of the Toronto Sun scoop: A Victoria, B.C. group called the Plenty Collective has been distributing thousands of dollars to individuals and groups to show up to anti-Israel rallies. The collective was dispersing as much as $20,000 a month, going back months. The Plenty Collective... Gave priority to indigenous people and people of color to protest, to, to project the false media notion that Israel was all white and opposed by a diverse group. Their managers would show up at anti Israel rallies with vans stocked with professionally rendered signs, banners, and flags, and the organizers would wear uniforms and provide food and drink to the people they hired to be there. The scam wasn't just happening in faraway Vancouver, it's been happening across the continent. Now, the anarchist network of Vancouver Island, Now we spoke about this a couple of shows ago, uh, about um, the BLM movement and the anarchist movement jumping onto the bandwagon, and these protests are starting to look a lot like the BLM protests that happened a couple of summers ago that burned down most of America. The uh, George Floyd protests, these protests uh, for Gaza are starting to look a lot like that. They're starting to get as violent as those, and and fairly soon you're going to start seeing uh, burning buildings. That's almost certain. Now, uh, the Anarchist Network of Vancouver Island posted emergency funds for Fatah Palestine support Palestinian anarchists defending their community from ge- genocide and apartheid against a settler colonial state of Israel. And then they gave a Bitcoin address. In December, Montreal pro-Israel activist Beryl Wiseman told The Sun that police sources firmly believed that protesters in the city were being paid. Organizers had divided the city up into sections, he said, with paid captains able to quickly put together noisy anti-Israel street demonstrations. In the U.S., it has been confirmed that protesters are getting paid as well. Millionaire tech mogul Neville Roy Singham has bankrolled multiple pro-Palestinian protests since last year. His People's Forum has organized multiple anti-Israel protests since October 7th, and prior to that, he has helped spread propaganda favoring China's communist regime. A massive 2023 New York Times investigation revealed Singham funded a group called Code Pink, which in turn has funded anti-Israel protests along with allying with Hamas and Holocaust deniers. Victoria area councillor Ian Ward, who has led an effort to expose the anti-Israel efforts of the Plenty Collective and its fellow travellers, say it's critical that people know the truth about the obstinacy of Palestinian protests. Quote, These organizations are paying people to be the face of their movement, end quote. And it's all organized by by a lot of the same individuals and groups who have been arrested in past protests. They're linked, and we know they're getting money from outside. Qatar, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the like have funded Hamas, Ward notes. It's not a stretch to suggest they're funding protests in North America and Europe as well. He says, it's not difficult to find proof of the linkage. A group calling itself the Anarchist Movement of Vancouver Island, for example, has been openly fundraising for pro Hamas activities, including untraceable Bitcoin as its currency. It isn't easy to find evidence that anti-Israel protesters are just actors and getting paid to show up. But it's critical that media and government pull back the mask and expose who is really paying for the performances. And with anti-Semitism surging everywhere, it's critical we do that now. Follow the money. There was an article by Warren Kinsella of the Toronto Sun uh, where, where the Toronto Sun ran a, a story last week stating outright that the pro-Hamas demonstrations that we see happening around the world are actually paid actors. They're actually paid, put together, put together by organizations, professionally rendered and paid for by organizations that want to sow chaos in the world and they just jump on any bandwagon, and now it's the, uh, now it's the Palestinian bandwagon, to, to destroy cities and to, to, to sow chaos. Now, why, you may ask, do people want to cause chaos across the world? It's a great question. Why do they want to cause chaos around the world? And, and the answer to that is simple. Years ago, years ago, there was a Soviet professor who decided that he was going to defect from Russia. he was a KGB agent in Russia and he decided he was going to defect from Russia. And he came to Montreal and then he went to and then he went to uh, to McGill University and he stated that the Soviets had a secret plan. And their plan was to overthrow the American government from within. The idea behind it was quite simple. Infest the universities of America with people who are going to push the pro-Soviet attitude, socialism, get the professors in there, sell the ideology to the students. Once the students have the ideology, then it's not hard to change society. It's going to take quite a few years, but it's not hard to, uh, to change society. And so that's, that's what they did. They got, um, they got students and teachers in the universities to buy into soci- to, to socialism. And after they bought into socialism, they were able to go out and spread their wings and try to encourage other people to buy into the movement and to push the movement forward. The idea was to destabilize the American government. The idea was to, to, to overthrow the government by destabilizing them. And so it's, it's not hard to see the, the trajectory of how this happened. First, they went over and they took over the universities. Then the people graduated from the universities and they got elected to political positions. So they got elected to their political positions. While they were in university, students started protesting. And this all started in the 1960s, in the late 50s, early 60s. So when you take a look at the protests for the, let's say, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and there were plenty of protests in the streets of, uh, for the Korean and the Vietnam War, you will see one thing in common. And, and the thing you'll see in common is the people who are protesting when they are interviewed are very clear at saying we want the overthrow of the government, not the end of the war. We don't want the end of the war. We want the end of the government. Capitalism is bad. Democracy is bad. And we should be going to socialism. And this is the mantra that's happened time and time again anytime America gets involved in a war. The push towards socialism. The push towards the end of democracy. The push towards the end of the American society, the end of the American dream, the end of the American invention. And and the professor said that it wouldn't take very long for this to happen. It takes three generations, three or four generations, four to max. And the Soviets were ready to wait it out. They said in four generations, society is going to fall apart. The Another thing that they suggested they do was to attack anything that was of value to society. And so it started off years ago, started off with, and, and, and you know, I know it's horrible to say this, and I know that in today's world saying this is political suicide, but I don't care because it's the truth. And look up this professor and you'll see this is exactly what he said. It started off with, with the pro-gay movement, getting gays accepted into society. They said that this would, this would eliminate the family structure, this would, this would reduce the American reliance on, on families, on, on father and a mother, just overthrew that whole concept that, that a family is a mother, a father, and children. Because now you have two fathers or two mothers. So, so this has to be accepted into society. And they fought really hard to get this accepted into society. The next thing they did was after that was accepted in society, let's break down the family structure altogether. So families were no longer, uh, no longer necessary. We could do it on our own. We could live by ourselves. We could do it. We don't need, the women. don't need men. Men don't need women. Just, just rip down the entire structure. Children don't need parents. And we see it. If you take a look at television and the evolution of morality on television, because that's the next thing they attacked. You got to get rid of religion and morality. So suddenly religion became a bad word and morality disappeared. If you take a look at television, television tells the entire story. Start watching television, looking at shows from the 1950s right down to today, and you see the entire evolution of this philosophy, of this plan that the Soviets had to overthrow the American government, and it has worked, and it is currently in effect. So you take a look at this plan, you take a look at American television, and what do we see? Okay, we'll just take a look at father figures. Let's just take a look at the family structure. In the 1950s, you'd have a show called Father Knows Best. You have a show like Leave it to Beaver, where the father was the patriarch of the family, and if the family had problems, they went and they asked the father, and the father would have an answer. He would have some kind of solution to whatever problem was there. And everything was was based around the father guiding his family in a moral way, in the proper way, in the American way, and the in, in the way that, that they should be raised. They all lived in nice homes, they had good jobs, <laughs> and society was great. If we move forward from the 1950s into the mid-60s, you start seeing that shake a little bit. You have shows like I Love Lucy, where where Desi and Lucy live together, Ricky Ricardo and Lucille Ball live together. But life wasn't so great. Lucy seemed to be the, 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 the one who wore the pants in the family. Let's put it that way. And if you move farther into the 70s, it got even better than that because now the father figure was starting to be destroyed. If you take a show like All in the Family which is hailed as the show that broke down the walls of racism, broke down the walls of, uh, uh, of, of racism and, and, and brought liberalism into the world. It also brought in the destruction of the father unit. Archie Bunker was the patriarch of the house. Archie was, was an everyday American and his son-in-law, Meathead, Mike Stivick was your average 20-odd-year-old liberal, and he was the conservative. But if you watch All in the Family, you realize that Archie is always, always made to look stupid. He would make an argument. Everyone would laugh at the argument. Meathead would say something that, that makes more sense in the minds of, of the liberals. And then suddenly, Archie was diminished. And the father figure started getting diminished from there. Right after All in the Family came the Mary Tyler Moore show, where there was no father figure at all. The the male father figure was removed from the show. If we continue going down the line, we end up with Homer Simpson and Peter Griffin. Today's representation of fathers. Useless. Dolts. So we went from father knows best and leave it to Beaver to Homer Simpson and Peter Griffin. How sad is that? uh, um, A comment on Facebook says, Lou was the father figure in um, in the Mary Taylor Moore show, Lou Grant, Uh, that's quite possible that he was, he was considered a father figure, but um, the, entire, um, the entire premise of the show, including the theme song, says, I'm going to make it on my own. I, I, don't need, I don't need anyone to help me. Just diminish the entire father figure. And that's where we stand today, where there's no family structure, no morality. We're living in a cesspool of a world. And here we are. Paid actors out on the street, screaming and yelling that Israel's an apartheid state, that Israel's a genocidal state. Crying people on television, claiming that Israel killed their babies, holding dolls you could buy on Timu. And the world lapping it up because nobody loves, the, the world just loves to hate the Jews. Give me a call, one If you want to get on the conversation, you can call me right now, one We can talk. The war in Israel. Now, this Gazan War and the general war with the Arabs in Israel has never really been depicted the way it should be depicted. It is not a land war. And anyone who tells you it's a land war that this is a land war is either a raving lunatic or lying straight to your face. This is not a land war. This is a religious war. Land wars are settled fairly quickly. And if this was a land war, this would have been settled a long, long time ago. Israel was created was recreated, was reclaimed by the Jews in nineteen forty eight. It was created through uh, through a, a resolution at the United Nations, which recognized Israel as a state. According to international law, Israel is a legitimate state. So those who claim that Israel is not a legitimate state is lying to you. Israel is a legitimate state recognized by the world. In 1967, in 1973, and countless times, Israel was attacked and defended themselves and captured more land as they defended themselves. Legitimately, according to international law, when you capture land in a defensive war, the land belongs to you. But regardless of that, the argument is never made, and it should be, that the mandate of Palestine which included Jordan and parts of Syria actually was created at the San Remo conference it was agreed on at San Reno conference created by the League of Nations given to the British to implement the mandate of Palestine was created to 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 help facilitate the creation of a Jewish state in all of the mandate of Palestine when the United Nations was formed after World War II, they adopted all the resolutions of the League of Nations, which means that everything that was, that, that was agreed on in the League of Nations, including the agreement made at the San Reno Conference, was now international law. It was now accepted international law. The entire United Nations voted to accept all the resolutions of the League of Nations. The League of Nations created the Mandate of Palestine to facilitate the creation of a Jewish state in all of that land. The United Nations changed it a little bit. They decided to offer the Arabs a state. The Arabs refused it. The Jews accepted it. We all know the history. You don't have to go through the history. But the idea that Israel is somehow violating international law by occupying the land that they're occupying is a joke, because international law gave them the land. And all that land that they're in right now, plus more, a country called Jordan, it was called Transjordan back then, that should all belong to Israel. That was all mandated for Israel. But nobody talks about that. So if we don't want to go that far back in history, that's fine. We don't have to go that far back in history. Gaza has been called an open-air concentration camp, an open-air prison in recent, in recent weeks and weeks and weeks. That is a flat-out lie, too. Gaza, they've made the claim that Gaza is being occupied by Israel. Israel left Gaza in 2006. In fact, in 2005, they started pulling out. They pulled out every man, woman, child, every grave, every tombstone, every animal, every fire hydrant was pulled out of Gaza in 2005. The Jews left Gaza and said Create a state. Here you go, Hamas. You have a place to create a state. And instead of creating a state, Hamas took the old Jewish land, all the factories that were left behind, all the equipment left behind, that were purchased by Jews in the diaspora, Jews in North America, who purchased the equipment so that the Arabs in Gaza would have a chance of building an economy. They destroyed the equipment. They burned down the greenhouses. They burned the farms. They launched an unrelentless attack on the Jewish state. Missile after missile landing on the heads of men, women, and children living in southern Israel. Seventeen years. Hundreds of thousands of missiles. Not one world condemnation. Not one care. That Jewish lives were in constant danger. That missiles and bombs were falling on the heads of Jewish children. Nobody cared. Where was UNICEF? Where was anybody? Where's Red Cross? Where were anybody? Nobody cared. Nobody cared that a full generation of children living in Gaza, well, living on the border of Gaza, excuse me, a full generation of Jewish children living on the border of Gaza had to grow up learning that they had to be five seconds away from a bomb shelter because a missile could land on their head at any time. Nobody cared that kindergartens, and elementary schools were built in bomb shelters because it was very difficult to move 30 children from a classroom into a bomb shelter in five seconds. So they just built bomb shelter schools because that many missiles were falling on the heads of the people of southern Israel. But nobody cared about that. Where were the protests? Where were the calls of uh, human rights violations? Where were the calls for for attempted genocide uh, violations and uh, Uh, in in the International Criminal Court? Where were the people who cared then? You want to call yourself a human rights activist, then you have to care about everybody's human rights. What about the children of, of the southern Israeli towns that were living on the border of Gaza and who were constantly attacked? What about them? Nobody cared. On October 7th, when the massacre happened, when the genocidal sex cult came in, and destroyed life in southern Israel. 1,200 people murdered, people taken hostage. The outrage in the world lasted 48 hours. Because it was Jewish lives. Nobody cares about the Jews. Jewish life is free, it's cheap. Nobody cared. And now, when Israel finally decides they've had enough, they were able to tolerate bombs falling under their heads for 18 years. They were able to tolerate people infiltrating the borders and murdering their citizens in the middle of the street. They were able to tolerate buses blowing up They were able to tolerate indiscriminate murders of their citizenship. But when they were invaded, and let's not mince words, what happened on October 7th was an invasion. Military targets were attacked. Civilians were killed. It was an invasion of the country. A genocidal attack to wipe out the Jewish people of Israel. If they weren't stopped on October 7th, if they didn't feel that they were going to be killed, if they didn't feel that they were going to be stopped, Hamas would have continued throughout the country, murdering Jews. The goal of October 7th was not, absolutely not, the liberation of Palestine. The goal on October 7th was the annihilation of Jews. It was an anti-Jewish attack, not an anti-Israel attack. And until we get the terminology right, until we realize what it was, we're going to live in delusional land forever. Because It's always been a religious war. It's never been a land war. No matter what your pro-Israel activists want to tell you. And so where do we go from here? So many people yelling that Israel's an apartheid state, that Israel's a genocidal state, that Israel's committing a genocide against the Palestinians. What do we do from here? Where do we go? How do we solve this issue? Well, there are many ways to solve the issue. And stopping fighting is not one of them. If Israel laid down its arms today, and I'm not going to use that tired old cliche, but the truth is, if Israel lays down its arms today, Then tomorrow, Hamas starts up their war with Israel again, starts up their terror attacks against Israel again. Israel must wipe out this cancer. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't for a second believe that if Israel eradicates every single Hamas member and every single leader of Hamas, that another group's not going to rise up in the next five, six years and start this all over again. I I believe that's going to happen. And I believe it's going to happen because the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which runs the Palestinian Authority, was the founder of, of modern-day terrorism. And their goal, the reason they were created, and the reason the entire Palestinian people were created in 1967, was solely and completely for the purpose of destroying Israel from the inside. When they realized they couldn't destroy Israel from the outside, when they couldn't destroy Israel in a military war, they said, all right, then we're going to destroy them from the inside out. We're going to have Arabs within Israel attacking Israelis from within Israel and their army's going to have to be split between the border and, the, and internally and, and we'll be able to destroy them that way. If they're fighting on five fronts, they can't defend any front. That was the concept behind it. And that's still the concept behind it. The boycott, divestment and uh, sanction movement is the same concept. When they realized that the PLO wasn't going to work with, with bombs and with killing Jews and the Jews had more resolve than that, they decide, let's go after their money, let's destroy their economy. And if we destroy their economy from inside, the country will implode. This was the same idea, it's the same concept, just a different tactic to 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 get to the same result. The idea is the destruction of Israel, and no matter how many times you want to slice it and how many times you want to parse it, and how many how many times you want to negotiate, there will never be a peace agreement between Israel and the so-called Palestinians because the goal isn't peace. The goal is the annihilation and destruction of the state of Israel and the removal of the Jews from the Middle East. That is the goal. That is the only goal that has always been the goal and that will continue to be the goal until either all the Arabs are removed from the area and and separated from the Jews, where their goal will still be to destroy the Jews and they'll try to find other ways to do it, or until the state of Israel is destroyed and all the Jews are killed. Kamal Abdul Nasser during the Six-Day War, was actually honest when he said, let's push the Jews into the sea. This is our goal. He was honest. He said it out loud. He said the quiet part out loud. Why don't we believe our enemies when they say they want to kill us? So when Bibi Netanyahu, who I'm not a big fan of, and anyone who's watched the show knows, I'm not a big fan of Bibi Netanyahu. But when Bibi Netanyahu says that they're not going to stop until the eradication of Hamas, I actually support his 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 assertion. I, I support it. I don't like Bibi. I think he's been in power too long and I think it's time for a new government to come in. But I do believe that Israel must without a doubt destroy Hamas. They have no choice. Hamas has vowed that they will commit another October 7th and another October 7th and one after that And as long as Israel is still in existence. Israel is fighting for its life. So those people who are screaming and yelling that Israel should stop, calling for a ceasefire to allow Hamas to rearm themselves, are just working towards the destruction and the annihilation of the Jewish people. It is very difficult to understand that your friends and your neighbors living in North America and around the world could be so interested in the destruction of your people. It's very hard to believe. And I'm sure it was very hard for the people in Germany to believe the same thing when their neighbors rose up against them. I'm not comparing the two situations, but I'm saying that a situation could arise in North America. It's very possible. Looking out the streets and looking at the people who have risen up against the Jewish people, that a situation in North America could arise. But the only difference between now and 1940s is the fact that we have the state of Israel, a strong Jewish state, who's willing to defend Jews anywhere in the world. We should be proud of that. Howie Silberger, thank you so much for joining me. I will see you next time right here on the show. If you want to reach me, you could do so. Uh, just send me an email, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate you being here. And we'll, we'll be back right here on this network.